0: Father, how reliant upon that truth we are, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Lord. Through that power, would you, Lord, shape and mold us into the people you would desire us to be? Give us hearts that long for Jesus and that look like Jesus. We pray that you would do that as you sanctify us by the word in Jesus' name, Amen. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm uh, 82. As we look at that particular psalm this morning, but keep your Bibles out because we're going to, we may jump around a little bit. I'm going to try to jump around. Hopefully I won't run out of too much time, but uh, so keep that handy. Psalm 82, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? A psalm of Asaph, God has taken His place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the Word of God. Please have a seat. I don't know if you pick up on it. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But there does certainly seem to be a growing unrest across the country, a growing unrest across the world. It seems that people and their anxiety levels are increasing. And the people of God are certainly not immune to that, particularly as we see more and more reports of orthodox beliefs being targeted as oppressive, um, as dangerous, as uh, expressions of hate, perhaps even abusive. It would seem at certain times that right is becoming wrong, and wrong is becoming right, as if the two could be flipped upside down. There was at times a state of mind that was considered a mental illness is now celebrated and promoted. We see these kinds of things happening, and we wonder, you know, what is going on? It is enough to make a person anxious. We see drag queen shows being put and brought into elementary schools, encouragement of sexual experimentation happening at some of these different schools and places, and it really Makes you wonder, where is our world headed? Where is our world headed? The words of Psalm 11, verse 3, you could say describe a bit of our situation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, while the particulars of our injustices that we may experience in our day, in our culture, are unique to us, the experience is a familiar one. It's not a new one. Those that lived during the time of the exile of Israel certainly felt what injustice was like. It was, in fact, you could say why they were taken into exile, because they had not ruled with justice. Because there had been so much oppression of the weak and the needy and the destitute and the hurting and the painful that the exile happened. And as they were exiled and scattered into the midst of the nations, they found injustice in those places too. So again, they were very familiar with the notions, if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? How are the righteous to live? Verse 5 in this Psalm 82 kind of captures this sentiment He says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, they in this passage is a bit ambiguous. It could refer to either the rulers that are being judged at this particular moment, or it's the people as a result of the injustices that have come. So, whether it's the people as a result of the injustice are now living in a time that is dark, a time where they do not have knowledge or understanding But in either case, the result is that the foundations of the earth are shaken. They are shaken. So, what are we to make of life today if this indeed is the case, if the anxiety in the future seems less and less certain in terms of our foundation? And I think the answer we really have to derive from what comes at the very end of this psalm where the prayer is simply this, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. And I want to explore that a little bit. I want to to work our way through the psalm so we see specifically what he's getting at and why this is such a powerful appeal um, at the end so that you might have a measure of hope and know how it is that we are to live in the world today. What is our role when it seems like the foundation's are being shaken well first of all let me just say this that you're not crazy if you think you are because you see these things going on if you don't see them i could say perhaps you're just not paying attention on the one hand but at the same time i want you to reflect on the grand scale of what's happening in this particular passage and it opens with one of the more challenging scenes that you will ever read in the bible when he says this in verse 1, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. He writes of this divine counsel. And He writes about taking His place in the midst of the gods. Now, those are some, some phrases that we're just not very comfortable with. In broad evangelical teaching, that this is perhaps a psalm that gets skipped <laughs> because this passage is so challenging. What does he mean? What does that mean? What is a divine counsel? And I didn't think there were any other gods. I thought there it's only one God. So, who are these gods that the writer is talking of? So, we need to unpack that just a little bit. And there's been kind of three principal interpretations that have come out by the different commentators, and I want to briefly mention what those are. So, one explanation is that the word the gods here is a reference to those elders in Jerusalem, the elders of, of Israel. So it's referring to human people who have been appointed in positions of leadership in the nation of Israel. That's one explanation that's given. A second explanation is given that these, these gods are spiritual beings. They're the principalities and the powers in, akin to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says, "We do not wrestle against flesh and blood," so he's not talking about uh, human leaders, he's talking about those in the spiritual realm that have some measure of power and authority over the nations. And a third interpretation, which is, uh, p- could potentially have overlap, at least in the last one, would say that that, he is, that the psalmist is borrowing a phrase from Canaanite mythology. Uh, Referencing an assembly of El, El was a general name, a generic name for God, and the pantheon in the Canaanite religion. There was a pantheon of gods, and El would sit at the top. Baal was his—you could say his—his executive uh, administrator. So Baal is the one who did everything, but El was the one who kind of sat distant at the top. So some would argue this is this is a, a borrowing of that phrase, but in any of the cases, whether it's one, two, or three, the point, of course, that the psalmist is making is that our God, your God, El, you know, Elohim, the great God, the high God, the one true God, sits above all the others. Whether those are human rulers, whether they're spiritual powers, or whether they're imagined gods of a Canaanite mythology… There is one thing that we are to take away and that God is reigning supreme over all of these other powers and authorities. That's one thing to draw away from it. Now I don't necessarily think that imagined God's is in view here, because the result of the fact that these that these beings, whether they're of spiritual nature or of earthly nature, of human nature, are wreaking havoc on society to the point that there is a great injustice happening. In the world in which they live there is a there is a lack of knowledge there is a lack of understanding they walk about in darkness and the foundations of the earth are shaking that's the statement and that is the direct result of the fact that whoever it is that this divine council is is causing this to happen that's the reality of what he's describing and they're experiencing why is this a psalm in the Bible because they are experiencing what this is like in the time that they were reading this. When is this, when is this particular psalm written? Probably written during the exile, perhaps during the exile. So, he could be writing about the people of Israel who have been scattered to the winds and are living under foreign rulers who are ruling in a manner in which they find themselves and their foundations being shaken for trying to live out a faithful life. I mean, you think of the book of Daniel, for example, of of someone who was living in the land of Babylon at the time, and as he various times tried to practice his faith and pray to God, he was persecuted. We know of times when his his co-labors were thrown into the fiery furnace. We know when he himself was thrown into a den of lions because they were trying to be faithful to God. The foundations of life were shaken. But I think, too, it's a very valid psalm today because we feel that same Essence happening in the world today, the foundations certainly seem to be turning upside down. They certainly seem to be shaken. So the psalmist here to say, Guess what? You're not crazy. This isn't unique. God knows what's going on, by the way. But it also reminds us that our situation, if that is indeed the case, we are feeling the, 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 the shakenness of our foundations and we're feeling the rights being turned into wrongs and the wrongs being turned into right. We don't know how we are supposed to live in the people of God. One thing we're reminded of is you're not crazy, but you're also not living in a unique time, that this has happened before. In fact, as you go back and study history, I mean, one thing I was doing this past year was teaching ancient history, what you'll notice is what's unique about our time is not the fact that we're experiencing a shaken foundation, it's the fact that we've lived such well-off, comfortable lives for most most of our experience. That is not a common experience in history across the world. That's what we have to realize is unique to us, not the fact that there is injustice and not the fact that our foundations are feeling shaken, but the fact that we have lived such relatively comfortable lives that we've not necessarily experienced that, but now perhaps perhaps beginning to feel a measure of it. So, know you're not crazy, and no, God is very much aware, or I should say, yes, God is very much aware of what's happening. He's very much aware that there is injustice happening in the world. And the comforting thought of a reading a passage like this is that God calls those in power to account. Now, there's a lot of parallel passages to what's happening in here, and I want to look at one. Psalm 2 is a more familiar psalm to many of you, and it speaks to this very thing happened, to this, the nations uh, bringing the foundations uh, shaking the foundations. In Psalm 2, he describes it this way. He opens up, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when we look at that, what we notice is that if you think there's a grand conspiracy going on in the world, well, I would say you're right, and it started back in the Garden of Eden. It did. Make no doubt about it. While we see things turning upside down, and there may be human forces involved that don't necessarily recognize the God of the Bible or even have any knowledge of Him, there are forces at work that are very explicitly seeking to throw off the bonds that the God of the Bible have put in terms of His limitations of being His creatures. That is very real, and that's been happening and unfolding. Now, the various agents that are used to bring that about, what is their awareness? Well, who knows what their awareness is. But that's really irrelevant. The point is that, yes, this is happening. You're not crazy. But the good news is, the very next verse in Psalm 2, verse 4, is, He who sits in the heaven laughs. He laughs at this effort to shake his foundation. The Lord holds them in derision. He calls those that are God's to account. Look at verses 2 through 4 of our Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What we see here is he takes his place in the council this divine counsel as he sits among the gods, as he's called them. He is telling them how they are supposed to be governing. And what we go on a little bit later on in the psalm, verse 6, he says, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. And again, this is one of those confusing statements. What does he mean by this? But I think what's, what we can derive, no matter which view you hold, is that God has appointed them to a very important position. I said, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High. Now, the phrase sons of the Most High is a a position. It's like saying, here, I'm giving you my signet marine. You are to exercise power on my behalf because I've appointed you to be a son. And therefore, when he comes and says, this is how you are to be living, how long will you judge unjustly? You are to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is your job. I've given it to you because I've appointed you to be a son of the Most High. So it is just and right that He would call them to account. That He would call them to account. Paul echoes this same idea when he talks about human authorities in Romans chapter thirteen, he says, "Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not terror, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience you have this interesting statement and we understand that's Paul writing to the church in a time when these very authorities that he's telling them to be subject to were were creating all kinds of havoc for people of God And so what are we deriving from this? There is a sense in which all of their power is only derived from God. So while you may, yes, be experiencing some measure of abuse, it will always be limited by the power that is over them. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean there aren't times when you do what is right and you aren't persecuted for it. Clearly, you will be. Clearly, Paul himself experienced that. But it does mean there is a hand over these hands, that is in control, and that has ultimate power, and that when they are persecuting those who are, who are living by faith, they are out of accord with the appointment that they have been given by God, and He will call them to account for those actions. That's what we're learning. And what is the, what is the account? We'll read that in verse 7 of, of Psalm 82. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Now, there's a contrast here. You were called gods, and now you're saying you will die like men. Which brings us back to, which is it? (laughs) Which is it? So I would say this, you're not crazy, but I also want to tell you, don't go crazy when things get hard. Because they might get hard. In fact, I would be surprised if they didn't get hard, because that's been the story throughout history for God's people. But don't go crazy and don't lose hope, because God has a plan, as you might have guessed. He has a plan, and that's, His plan is revealed really in verse 8, the last verse of this psalm. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now... I know we think about that in grand terms. We think about, you know, the Great Commission, you know, go, in, go and make disciples of all nations, those things like that. But there's an interesting phrase here. You have to, we have to unpack it a little bit. It says, you shall, future tense, inherit all the nations. So what is that implying? That there is a time when the nations aren't under God. Now, that's a little bit of a challenging idea. So now we need to explore a little bit, who are these sons of God? what is the grand scope here going on? So, I want to take you back to understanding when exactly were these nations not under God, that they had to be inherited one day in the future from the time of this writing by the Lord. And to to understand that, let's look a little bit back about the history of what happened in the garden to cause this grand conspiracy to come about with the forces of evil lining up against uh, man. And you have man, of course, falling in the garden and he's being cast away from the Garden of Eden. Remember, he's being kicked out. There's an angel with flaming swords guarding the way back. And what's that a symbolic of? It's symbolic of that he's being cast away from the presence of God. There is now a separation that exists. It's as though he's been cast off. And then in Genesis chapter 6, of course, we read about the time of Noah when, at the beginning of that chapter, the sons of God saw the daughters of man and came down and, and and did stuff in such a way that the earth became so utterly de- corrupt, de- corrupt that God brings a flood to wipe out all of life, with the exception of Noah and his family. And then a little bit later in the book of Genesis, after Noah's family has come out of the flood, they've recovered, they've begun to multiply, instead of going, just being dispersed across the world, the earth... They stay together and decide, let us make a name for ourselves and build a tower that we might ourselves reach God. And God sees what they're doing and sends His judgment down and casts them into speaking different languages, confusing their languages, so they, so they collect together in different nations. And in the retelling of that event, in Deuteronomy chapter 32... Moses says something very interesting in verses 7 through 9. He says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So there is this picture here now at the Tower of Babel. There is, a, there is a, a, an official disinheritance of the nations. He is putting the nations under the governance of whoever these sons of God are. But he's allotting for himself one tribe, one man. Of course, at that time it was to be Abraham because that's how Abraham is introduced. Abraham is introduced to be the one person that God has started with that I will be your God and you will be my people. Do you see the difference? He's put them under the governance of these sons of God according to their number, but for himself, he's taking Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the refrain throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. So we have this picture here now of the nations have been disinherited and God has adopted one man to belong to him that he will be his God. But the final and ultimate plan of redemption is not that He would remain in that situation. is that one day He will inherit all the nations. All the nations. We're even made aware of that in the promises given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there's a, there's a time coming and a means coming, a plan put in place when God is going to inherit for Himself back all the nations of the earth. at the time of the psalm it hadn't happened yet in order to get there these those that are put in charge of governing these nations are going to be brought to justice and by the way when that happens there's going to be a lot of turmoil i think it's already been happening and wherever it happens there's a lot of turmoil i want to read to you a couple passages so if you have your bible this is going to be fun turn to isaiah Isaiah chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction." The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So we have this picture, when these nations are brought to justice, when these gods that are governing, these nations are brought to justice, it's going to be ugly. It is ugly. And he's speaking about things that are happening in the heavenly realms as well as the earth. I want you to put down and go... Flip a little bit back to, Isaiah, to chapter 24 in Isaiah. He's talking again about judgment on the whole earth, and I want you to look, beginning in verse um, 19. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it always, it's excuse me, it sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So there is this, it is a cosmic battle in the heavens and on the earth. When the nations are judged because these sons of God who are governing did it with, the, with injustice. They were appointed to be sons of God, to be governing on God's behalf with His justice, and they failed to do it. It is why we see such turbulence in the world going on today. Now, the hope is that one day God will inherit, to inherit the nations. So, how does He do that? How does He do that? Well, again, let's look at another psalm. Psalm 2, we've already been looking at that briefly. Where is my psalm? Sorry, going the wrong way here. We've already looked at the first few verses. Let us, the kings of the earth, excuse me, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, this is how He's going to terrify them, ask for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's how he's going to terrify them, by putting his king on Zion. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, that term son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Refuge during this turbulent time. So we have this judgment on the nation's coming that's going to result in the Lord taking back all the nations of the earth under His care. Now, who is this son that He's appointed? Of course, we know who that is. That's Jesus. Jesus actually quotes this psalm in John chapter 10. And it's an interesting quote. The context of John 10, I want to get across to you to help you see how is this plan unfolding. Well, in John 10, beginning in verse 14 through 16, He says, He's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So we see how he's going to bring the people who are themselves under the wrath of God, out from underneath the wrath of God. But then he says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What is he talking about? He's talking about inheriting the nations. Inheriting the nations. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, what is He going to have to do in order to do that? Exercise His justice upon these gods who have not ruled justly. Bring the sword down upon them. Let's think about when Jesus announced His ministry to the people, He quoted again from Isaiah. He quotes, if you, you can find it in Luke 4, but I'm going to go back to the original source of Isaiah, chapter 61. This is what Jesus says, you know, when He's he's handed the scroll and He opens it up to Isaiah, Isaiah 61, and He reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what He quotes. And of course, you see, what is the result of injustice? result of injustice is this is what's happened. And so, he's going to make those things right. He's going to set those prisoners free. Now, it's interesting because at that point, he closes the scroll because initially, that's what his ministry is in his earthly ministry, but it's not the full context of his ministry because the very next phrase in Isaiah 61 that he didn't read out loud but is still part of his job, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He's going to bring in the nations by bringing the vengeance of God, as we've already read in Isaiah chapter 34 and Isaiah chapter 24, upon the nations, the judgment upon these sons of God who will die like men, and it will be a great spiritual battle, so that one day He inherits the nations. Now, I want to, there's a couple of things we get out of that. One, let's be really, really glad that we have a God we can take refuge in. Because even in the time when He exercised this measure of justice on on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., we've we've talked about this before, you'll recall when Jesus is foretelling the events that are going to happen, not one stone is going to be left on another, you're going to see this happen and this happen, and when you start to see these things happening, go and flee to the hills. And the reason that was so significant is that when the army came through, they were going to take out Jerusalem and its walls. Now, ordinarily, the walls are the place that you go hide behind, when an army is coming. That's why they exist. So, if you're living out in the, in the, the land, the countryside, and you see a foreign army, army coming, you're going to go hide, take refuge behind the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, go to the hills, flee to the hills. And those who listened to Jesus, who took refuge in the words of Jesus, escaped from the judgment that God Himself is bringing. So, be very thankful. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Be glad that you have a God who has come to rescue you. But don't be surprised when oppression and danger and tribulation comes. Because He will provide you with a way out. He will provide you with a way out. It is a scary thing to think about the wrath of God coming the wrath of god coming upon the earth but that's exactly what is happening listen to this from first corinthians chapter 15 this is paul commenting on this very idea he's talking about the resurrection if in christ if in, in fact but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, uh, excuse me, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until all he has, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Do you know this is part of the gospel story? That this is where he is now. This is what he's been doing now. If you wonder what is Jesus occupied with now, I mean, from the book of Hebrews, on one sense we know he's interceding for us. But at the same time, what we also know is he is he is in the process of bringing this judgment about. Now, what is your role? Your role is essentially to go collect those who have taken refuge in Him. By the way, that's why we go out with the gospel message. We are going to find out those belong to Him in all the nations of the world in which He is bringing judgment upon these rulers who have ruled such a way that have held them captive. And the the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ, the King who has come to set you free, is what we go to do that with. And we'll explain how it is that He has set them free. He has set you free from not only the, the... the rulers of injustice and the oppression, but the guilt that would put you under the sword as well. And so we go out with that message. Where do we go? We go to all nations. And why are we able to do that? Because he says, all authority has been given to me. I will be with you always. All authority has been given to me. Now what's interesting in that John 10 passage, which we started to look at, I got myself distracted here for a second. Sorry about that. When he says, there are other sheep of my fold, and they will listen to my voice so that I have one flock. And they ask him, says, look, tell us plainly if you are, if you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one, which didn't sit very well with the Jewish leaders. So this is what happens. The Jews Uh, This beginning in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they clearly understand this is what Jesus is doing, which he is, by the way. I and mean, He is saying that. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's our quote from Psalm 82. Now He explains, If He called them gods to whom the word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the question becomes, in his answer, is he trying to to get out from underneath his accusation of blasphemy by saying, look, there's precedent in the Bible that men have been called gods before. Because most commentators, that's how they take this. They say, see, this is a reference in Psalm 82 that these sons of God, these these gods, are just men, and that's how Jesus is getting out from underneath this accusation of blasphemy. But that kind of loses the force of what He's saying when He says, I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. I think what He's trying to draw attention to in this psalm is what is it that the sons of God have been appointed to do, and that is to exercise judgment. And because what is He saying about Himself? Himself if you don't believe me and what I'm saying, believe the works that I do, because the works that I am doing are the Father's works. In other words, He is the one faithfully executing what those gods in Psalm 82 were not faithfully executing. That's His point. He says, no, I am the Son of God, and this is my appointment to bring justice to the earth. I know this is a side of the gospel that we don't often hear. We, you know, we hear about you know, how we're struggling with our guilt, and we need God to forgive us, and that's indeed the case, but there's a whole other side, and it's a cosmic picture that we have of what Jesus is doing that's part of this good news. Because what's interesting, when you think about the good news in the time of Jesus in the first century, when they were looking for the good news, they weren't looking for someone to forgive their sins, at least not primarily, they were looking for someone to bring justice. Now, He did both. We tend to forget the justice side and and, and remember the forgiveness of sin side, whereas they didn't really pay attention to the forgiveness of sin sides and focused on the justice side. But the reality is that both are true. It's just that they had to happen in a certain order. (laughs) We have to have Him willingly go to the cross first to overcome death for those who would otherwise be under the sword of judgment when it comes, so that when the sword of judgment comes, those that belong to God... Who have responded in faith for the, to the gospel being proclaimed will find refuge from that justice. But make no mistake, your Savior is a conquering king. He, he is the lion that, that is Aslan, that C.S. Lewis writes about when Lucy asks, Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. <laughs> There's no way Jesus is safe, but he's good. And He's come for you, to deliver you not only from the wrath of God that you deserve, but from the injustices that we see happening that are turning the foundations of the world on their head today. So be faithful, be hopeful, and know that your role, by the way, is to go out and engage in this same battle, not with a physical sword, but with the sword of the Spirit. Just as as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he says what? We do battle not with flesh and blood." but against the principalities and the powers of the heavenly places. We are doing battling them by what? By bringing the sword of the Spirit, the truth of the gospel proclamation to bear. That's our sword. And of course, you you better be ready for a spiritual battle. That's why He says, put on the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and the sandals that will take you to the places of the world and bear the message of of the peace that is yours by trusting in God. So you you have a place, by the way, in the army of God. So I guess my application question is, one, are you overly anxious more than you need to be? You don't need to deny that the foundations of the world are being shaken. But you need to understand why they're being shaken and what God has planned to do about it, what He has already done about it, and what He's now calling you to do about it. Don't shy away from proclaiming the truth that Jesus is King. For while earthly leaders and earthly people may not recognize that or understand that or even think it's a spiritual battle, those spiritual beings and powers and authorities in the heavenly places, they know and they are hearing and they're influencing people in the world. Father, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us a fuller picture of the gospel, that Jesus is not one to be trifled with, that He is a powerful, powerful God. Not a God, but the God. Who is coming one day to bear the sword of judgment upon the, the nations of the earth and their rulers, that He might inherit all the nations back to Himself again. Lord, would you help us to be faithful in trusting you, and taking refuge in in You when hard times come, and not forsaking the message of this great gospel truth that You have given to us, that Jesus is, in fact, the King who has come to set the prisoner free. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.